terms of a, a sermon, everything from curse words used in a sermon to try to emphasize a point to uh, uh, a sermon series on giving to your church every six months uh, to uh, pastors that'll search the internet and find a sermon series and then that's what they'll do for their own. They'll make it their own. They don't really apply themselves uh, to studying to show them show them themselves approved. And so it's really a great comfort to me to know that you're being left in some good hands when I'm gone and men who are not trifling about with sacred things. And as I mentioned, it's been several weeks since we've been in our study of Luke, and uh, this was penned by Luke, and it's done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his most excellent Theophilus. And if you'll remember back from chapter 11, Jesus had just cast out a demon of a man who was mute. And the Pharisees and lawyers, they accused Jesus of doing this by the power of Satan. They refused to acknowledge that Jesus had actually done so with divine power. The miracle itself was irrefutable, and there was no arguing that something miraculous had just happened. And yet they still would not accept the fact that they had God in the flesh standing before them. And that's going to be a very important uh, thing for us to understand in our text But then Jesus, after that, he turns to the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he he proclaims a series of woes upon them for their dead-end and hypocritical religion. And they became angered at him and enraged for everything that they were not. What the Pharisees demonstrated in their pomp and arrogance, Jesus demonstrated in humility. What the Pharisees demonstrated in their cruelty, especially to those outside of their false religion, Jesus demonstrated in sympathy and compassion to Gentiles and publicans and sinners. And what Jesus, or rather what the Pharisees demonstrated in their hypocrisy, Jesus demonstrated in truth and sincerity. And so there's a sort of crescendo of hostility that was reached right there at the end of chapter 11 to such an extent that the Pharisees started to become very hostile to Jesus. And they they looked for ways that they might try to trap him in whatever he might say. And so we began this long discourse that begins in chapter 12 with tens of thousands of people crowding around right after this hostile confrontation. And yet Jesus turns to his disciples and begins to teach them. Now, this isn't necessarily just the twelve, but it's more than likely several disciples close by to whom he was instructing. These are the curious learners, if you will. Uh, That's what the word disciple means. It means a learner or a student. But back in John chapter 6, it says that many of his disciples walked no more with him. So there are more than likely some here who will not be fully committed to Jesus, and they will end up leaving him. That's sort of the setting that we find ourselves in this morning, and we're going to pick up reading today in Luke chapter 12. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word, starting in verse 1 of Luke 12. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this, Under these circumstances, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever 
you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Verse 8 starts, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would instruct our hearts that we might be more full of Christ after hearing what we hear today, that your word would bring comfort to us, that it would rebuke and exhort us and encourage us to walk more closely with you. Father, we thank you for it. We just pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the uh, more notable survivors of the Holocaust died this past week by the name of Eli Wiesel. And some of you may or may not have read his book, Night, which chronicled his and his family's life at the hands of Nazi Germany during World War II. It's an absolutely horrific and gripping account by any means, and it is one of the few books that I've read in my lifetime that I've sat down to read it before bed, and I finished it before morning because I could not go to sleep about it. It's about 100 pages long, and, but what he writes and what he describes there and his experience and being taken to a, a concentration camp is unlike anything that I've read. In fact, the book is required reading for some high school settings. His use of words like hunger, thirst, fear, transport, selection, fire, chimney, they all have a more profound meaning for him than any of us could imagine. And yet this book gives us a small glimpse into what was the most difficult years of his life. But what also gripped me about the book, as I remember so clearly, was the foreword by Francois Mauriac. He was a, a French journalist who, who uh, persuaded Eli to write out for the world the details of his life in that concentration camp. Francois lived in France, and he had his own experiences during the German occupation, but as he readily admitted, he was nowhere near the experiences that Eli had had and what he had seen and what he had smelled and experienced and gone through. But while the two met for the first time in Paris in 1954, Eli began to share the details of the horrific events that his mind would never erase. Eli, who was a a devout Jew, 
admitted that during his time in that concentration camp, that he doubted God's existence, especially when he witnessed a child being taken to the gallows at the hands of the Nazis. It was at that time, and it was in that context of their conversation, that Francois wrote the following in his foreword about it. And I'll abbreviate just a bit, just for the intensity of the content. He said, quote, He said, And I, who believe that God is love, what answers was there to, that there to give my young interlocutor, whose dark days still had the reflection of angelic sadness that had appeared one day, on the face of that child being taken to the gallows. What did I say to him? Did I speak to him of another Jew, this crucified brother who perhaps resembled him and whose cross conquered the world? Did I explain to him that what had been a stumbling block for his faith as a Jew had become a cornerstone for mine? And, And that the connection between the cross and human suffering remains, in my view, the key to unfathomable mystery in which the faith of his childhood was lost? And yet Zion has risen up out again out of the crematoria and the slaughterhouses. The Jewish nation has been resurrected from among the thousands of dead. It is they who have given it new life. We do not know the worth of one single drop of blood, one single tear. All is grace. If the Almighty is the Almighty, the last word for each of us belongs to Him. That is what I should have said to this Jewish child. But all I could do was embrace him and weep. Ecclesiastes 3.7, it tells us that there is a time to be silent and there is a time to speak. There are times when we as Christians should mourn and weep with those who are weeping, as Romans 12.15 tells us. There are times when listening is the right thing to do, just as Francois had done. And so when we do speak, when we do, we are told to let our speech always be with grace, as though it is seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person, as Colossians 4, 6 tells us. And certainly after the events that have unfolded over the last week in our nations and our connections to the world through the internet and social media and those types of things, it can be very tempting to jump on the internet and comment about this or that. It can be very tempting to jump on this side or that side or try to embrace this cause or that cause and to take up a side in an us versus them mentality. There's a great temptation to defend this group or that group or even point fingers. And sadly, that's what many evangelical leaders have done this past week. They basically jumped on a bandwagon of a culture and they spewed back its own bile and anger and fear. They had decided the guilt and innocence of an individual in a two-minute video in their own personal courts. Some have said that we just need more laws to protect the lives of police and civilian both. And then to top it all off, there have even been some leaders giving instructions to pastors as to what they should preach about on this very day. Listen. When leaders are calling for us to engage the culture and change the culture and win the culture, they are calling the church to drift from its course, and that puts it in grave danger. Because the heart of the problem of everything that you see going on in this world today is sin. And the answer to that problem is the gospel. And so for you, 
The object of your life is not to go back and try to fix past wrongs. The object of your life is not to worry about to make sure that somebody gets elected and, or to get somebody to vote a certain way. The goal of your life is to preach the gospel to those that are in your sphere of influence. You are an ambassador for Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us. And so your mission as a Christian, as a believer, is to go in the world and then preach the gospel, and then embrace them with arms wide open with the, when the love of God just overwhelms them and, it, and the scales fall off their eyes. That's your job. Because realize this, if you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you, as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, do not give the world Jesus Christ, then you have nothing to offer people that they can't already get from the world. Think about that. And that's what our text is talking about this morning. It's calling on you and I to do. I want you to look at verse 8 of Luke 12 there. Luke 12, verse 8, it says, And I say to you that everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. So first of all, confessing Christ is not just reserved for the martyrs. Confessing Christ is not just reserved for reformers. Confessing Christ is just not for pastors and teachers. It says that confessing Christ is for everyone. Everyone who confesses me. It's an all-inclusive statement. There is no distinction between the wealthy and the poor or the clergy and the layperson. The duty to confess Jesus Christ belongs to all of us. And this is really absolutely foundational to the Christian life. In fact, according to the Apostle Paul, a verbal confession of Christ is where authentic faith begins. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what does it mean to confess Christ? What does that mean? Well, the word here for confess gives us a little bit of a clue as to what it means. And that word is homo legao, homo legao. It's a compound word, which you're probably familiar with some of the parts. The first part is homo, meaning same, as opposed to hetero, meaning different. So homo, meaning same, and legao, or Logo, which means word or saying. And so when you put those two words together, it means to say the same thing as another. It's to agree with. It's to affirm or agree with Christ about his person, his works, and his words. In other words, it's to agree with Christ about the truth of sin and its consequences. It's to agree with Christ about the way of salvation. It's to agree with Christ about what is true and what is false. It's to agree with Christ about his lordship and his sovereignty. And just as an aside, Jesus is only called Savior in the New Testament about ten times. But he's called Lord in the New Testament over 700 times. And so to confess Christ is to say that salvation belongs only to him, and to Jesus alone, and that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and there is no one that can come to the Father except through 
him. It's to say that Jesus is your master and no other. It's to say that you are willing to deny yourself and, and to take up your cross and follow him. 1 John 4.15, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. It's non-negotiable. It's not debatable. And it is a necessary requirement for you to confess Jesus Christ. And so where are you to do this? It says in our text, before men, before men, or generally mankind, or, or those around you. It means you are to do it around your family. It is you are to do it around your coworkers. You're to do it around your mechanic or your chiropractor or your obstetrician or your doctor or anyone and everyone that God brings into your sphere of life. Your daily walk is an opportunity for you to take the conversation and drive it towards Jesus Christ. Is it always easy to do? No, it's not always easy to do. J.C. Ryle said, The difficulty in confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. It's never easy at any period. It never will be easy as long as the world stands. It is sure to entail us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and persecution. The wicked dislike seeing anyone better than themselves. The world which hated Christ will always hate true Christians. But whether we like it or not, whether it be hard or easy, our course is perfectly clear. In one way or another, Christ must be confessed. End quote. Confessing Christ may cost you popularity. Confessing Christ may alienate you from your family. Confessing Christ may cost you a job promotion. Confessing Christ may cost you an easy life, and confessing Christ will cost you sinful, temporal pleasures as you deny yourself and you take up your cross. But are you even willing to do it? Have you counted the cost in following Jesus Christ? Are you even willing to stand up for Jesus Christ even if no one else will? If you were in a stadium of a million people in there and they asked for those who follow after Jesus Christ to stand up, would you be the first to jump to your feet? Would you be able to rise up? Would you stand for him and confess him even if you were the only person in that stadium to do so? How about if you were the only Christian left in the entire world? Would you take your stand and confess Christ if you were the only believer left? Would that be you? How are you doing in this area in your life? How are you doing in confessing Christ before men? Are you looking for opportunities to talk to the Lord or about the Lord? And, or are you just looking for opportunities to talk about sports and politics and everything else but Jesus Christ? Would people even know that you are a Christian by your speech and by your conduct and your life? Because there is great reward in confessing Christ in this life. Because Jesus promised that he will confess us in the life to come. It says, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. If we are faithful to confess Christ before men, if we are bold enough to stand up for Jesus Christ, even if no one else will, 
He will stand up for us later. And one of the surest ways that you can miss out on heaven is to deny Christ in your life. But Jesus Christ says here that if you do confess Him before men, He will confess you before the angels in heaven. But if you deny Him before men, He will deny you before the angels in heaven. This is like pretty straightforward here. It's it's a picture of the coming judgment. What you do in this life with, with Jesus Christ will make all the difference in the world of what He will do with you in the life to come. Matthew 25 Verses 31 through 33, Jesus said, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. If you recall, Jesus had asked Peter back in Luke chapter 9, And he was asking, he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who am I? And if you remember, he said, the Christ of God was Peter's response. In Matthew 16, I love that one. It's so much more full. It says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But anyway, Jesus went on to tell them after that about the cost of discipleship. But in Luke 9, 26, Jesus said basically the same thing that we have in our text today. He said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so, to deny Jesus Christ in your life, to fail to confess him before men, and to submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the absolute height of folly. It's to bring on a most assured, and certain judgment in the life to come. In the same chapter of Luke 9, in the previous verse, in verse 25, Jesus said, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What do you have to gain apart from Jesus Christ? What do you think there is in this world that is more satisfying than Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something. If you were to take Jesus Christ and you were to place him on a scale and then you were to take everything of value that you know of, everything of beauty known to mankind, everything of worth, every lofty and high mountain, every deep sea and every raging river that you could think of, every sun, moon, and star, every constellation, everything that mankind treasures in this world, every pleasurable activity that you can possibly imagine, and you try to place it on the opposite side of where Jesus Christ is, and that scale will not move. There is nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ. There is nothing of greater beauty than Jesus Christ. There is nothing that's going to bring you greater satisfaction than Jesus Christ. There is no greater treasure than Jesus Christ. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. What is it in your life that you think is more valuable than Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Is your heart 
full of Christ? Is your heart so full of Christ that you can't wait for the next opportunity to confess him before men? Have you sanctified Christ as Lord in your hearts? Are you always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that lies within you? And are you ready to do so with gentleness and reverence? As 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, the text is cut and dry for us. There's no wiggle room here. There's no option for you to be able to stand in the presence of God except to confess Christ before men in this life. But confessing Christ is a comfort to us, is it not? And why is that? Think about this. When you stand before God for judgment, and all the secrets of your heart is revealed, right? Verse 2 that we read, Luke 12, said that there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. But the secrets of your heart are revealed in every careless word that you ever spoke, every secret grumbling, every secret doubt of God, every secret lustful thought, every secret complaint, every secret anger, every sin that you ever committed in your life. And you come before the throne of God, and you fall down before Him, and you are weighed against the law of God and found wanting. And yet, you have confessed Jesus Christ before men. The very Son of God will rise up to your defense, and He will testify before God and the holy angels that you belong to Him by faith. And he will plead to the Father on your behalf to declare you righteous based on the death that he himself fearlessly paid for on that cross. He will say to the Father that you have his garment of salvation and that you have been wrapped in his robe of righteousness, as Isaiah 61.10 tells us. And he will be able to make you stand up in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, as Jude 1.24 says. I want to stop right here this morning because I ran out of time. And I could not do justice for the next few verses, and so I hope you can come back next week. And we're going to look at the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But I want to know, have you come to a place of surrender in your life and are living in such a way that Jesus Christ has your supreme allegiance and your supreme loyalty? Are there things in your life that are impeding you from following Jesus Christ fully? Are you confessing Christ before men? These are sobering words that every single one of us in this room needs to consider. These words are life and death words. To confess Christ in this life means that Jesus Christ will stand up for you in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that He is our advocate, that He is our high priest, and that He is our friend. God, I just pray that if there's any heart, any person in this room that has not confessed you as Lord, 
that today would be that day. God, and I pray that if there is any heart here that is wavering, that if there are any knees that are weak, that they may look to you as their supreme joy and their satisfaction, and that Jesus would be found to have infinite worth over anything in this world. God, help us to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness and to walk in your ways and obey your commandments. Oh God, we just pray that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.